I'm standing on the Royal Mile, one of the most famous streets in the world and the beating heart of the city of Edinburgh. From here I can see up the hill towards the castle or down the hill to St Giles Kirk and the palace of Holyrood House beyond. But I'm not here to visit castles, churches or palaces, but a small townhouse tucked away behind the shop fronts. This house is Gladstone's Land, owned and operated by the National Trust for Scotland. And this is the Gladstone's Land podcast. Okay, so we're here recording in the Gladstone's Land cellar. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're here recording for the first episode of the Gladstone's mm-hmm. Land podcast. Uh, I am, I'm, my name's Thomas. I'm Kate. And we are, well, uh, I'm a volunteer at the Nas- <laughs> and, with the National Trust for Scotland at Gladstone's uh, Land. And, and I'm a staff member here. I'm uh, the visitor services supervisor at Gladstone's Land. And so... Let's talk a bit about why we wanted to do the podcast, I suppose. All right. Um, how, how long have you been working here? Only about three months, so not very long. And I should say, I, I started volunteering in the summer. And when I when I first came and I did the tour and um, so w- w- went on the tour a few times and heard uh, sp- spoke to various members of uh, staff and volunteers and also looked uh, on the... Uh, on the um, that Gladstone's Land hard drive uh, uh, Which on is the a computer. Pretty exciting place, let me tell you. There's, I was amazed at how much content, mm-hmm. how much research and knowledge there was, um, both both in the uh, sort of written down, if you like, that, that people have done over the years, but also in the heads of the the volunteers and members mm-hmm. of staff. A huge wealth of knowledge about the building, but also about social history in old Edinburgh and I thought uh, doing a podcast would be a wonderful way to showcase some of that and also to to really demonstrate how really really demonstrate how exciting the National Trust for Scotland is um, that it's uh, we've got a, hu- a, a hugely diverse uh, group of volunteers mm-hmm. um, from uh, of all ages and backgrounds from all over the all over the world actually yeah very much so we have a, a particularly a lot of students who come in for a semester or for a year um, so we have a lot of yeah very diverse um, group um, volunteering here have you ever done a podcast before I've not no I've, I've had this idea in the back of my head that I really want to do a, a, a podcast on um, sort of forgotten women but um, no I've never actually put that into practice it's uh, I'm a, a keen listener of podcasts, and I did a bit of student radio. I had a very <laughs> me too I had a, a long time ago. I had a um, I had a very naff uh, politics uh, chat show in my first year, <laughs> and then we had a slightly more successful student theatre review show um, later on. And so, so I have that in the background, but I've all, I've wanted to do a podcast as well. So, so, so here we are, <laughs> uh, and I hope uh, it, the the plan, if you like, is that over the next few um, weeks and months, we'll do a, a we'll do a few episodes um, on various aspects of social history and social mm-hmm. life that. Uh, that are exhibited on the tour. And so there'll be things, uh, there'll be a, a, a few things about life in old Edinburgh, and then we'll also have episodes on food and leisure. 
the uh, Jacobite Reformation. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good... uh, what have we got? We've got costume, mm-hmm. um, decorative art. You know, so there's just as as an as a demonstration of the huge range of subjects that um, people uh, people here have have great knowledge expertise about. in. Yeah, we've got a got a lot of very interesting, uh, very sort of well-read, well-researched, very, you know, very interesting volunteers and staff members here with their, these, these incredibly diverse specialisms. So what, um, what we're going to do today uh, is, is a little bit of introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, we've got uh, Anna Breerton, the, the visitor services manager, mm-hmm. uh, in to, uh, to, to give us a bit of introduction and background about the house and what the National Trust for Scotland does here. And we thought we would start um, by chatting a little bit about the history of Edinburgh itself. Yes, and, and I suppose that will then set us up for how the house fits into that and, and what's going on. And, and the origins of the house are very much from the, the early 17th century or the house as we present it. Uh, so a little bit of context around what's going on in Edinburgh in the 17th century. So where do, where do, where do we start? Goodness. I, guess... I, think, I think the thing I usually start with when I'm doing a tour or something like that is simply how densely populated Edinburgh is at this period. And it's, I think it's important to get your head around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is. It's one of the most densely populated cities in Europe at the beginning of the 17th century. So there has always been a, a settlement uh, on, on the rock, if you like, mm-hmm. on Castle Rock, as long as we... Uh, as, as long as we have records, um, there was the, sort of the, the the castle had always been a royal fortress, and then there was the Abbey of Holyrood mm-hmm. at the bottom of the hill, and the the Royal Mile is the the road connecting those two. And for for many many centuries, there had been uh, some sort of settlement around uh, around that road. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the key date in terms of uh, the, the key date for us where sort of recognisable um, Edinburgh uh, begins, I, I was I was starting with 1513 with the Battle of Flodden when uh, the, the the army of James the Fourth was was routed by uh, by the, the English at the Battle of Flodden and the the citizens of Edinburgh found themselves unprotected and so they built the Flodden Wall. Uh, which encum- which which closed the city in on mm-hmm. three sides, right? So so the north to the north of the Royal Mile was the Nor Loch, uh, a, 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 a swampy which was lake. Actually, put in originally as a defensive structure as well. Well, there yeah. you go, and and then on all three sides, uh, the the other three sides, uh, the city was boxed in by a wall. Mm-hmm. So whereas beforehand, um, people had been freer to to live a uh, little further apart. And to come and go. Uh, now everybody had to live within the wall for for defence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was also, I'm not entirely sure. I have heard this that um, there was a you had to pay a toll to to enter the city. Uh, to go through one of the gates, you had to pay uh, pay a, a, pay a fee. And so people who were very poor and couldn't afford the fee never left. And so the walls of Edinburgh were the end of their world. And that's actually why you know at the um, uh, halfway down the Royal Mile. Is that Tollbooth wind. Um, well, Tollbooth that will the the Tollbooth was the name of the like the city hall. Oh, okay. Um, which stood in the middle of um, in the middle of the Royal Mile. But you know where the World's End pub is. I do yes, that's where the wall the came end. across. Yeah, exactly. Um, the there were various gates in the wall, and you had to pay a toll to 
to get back in. So for a lot of people, if they lived in Edinburgh and couldn't afford the toll, then the gates were the end of their world. And so if you go to halfway down the Royal Mile now, at number one High Street, there is a pub called The World's End, uh, where one of these gates used to sit. So so that's the that's the context. Um, Edinburgh was confined into this very narrow space. Yeah, very tightly on all four sides. And so because of that, and with a... a increasing population um so we know in the beginning of the 17th century it's about uh, 25,000 people are living in edinburgh in this really quite small space uh, people are getting very creative with the way that they are living because you've got to go, get a lot of people in um so houses are built very close together um that's where you get the the close structure that develops in edinburgh with a lot of very small narrow closes with a lot of buildings um built it built in tight on them um, and they were also there was a security element to that as well they could close a gate mm-hmm. or, or a door at night um but then you also get this is the start of the high-rise living the people built up uh, and that allowed more families to live in this in the same space in the same building um, and we have five stories at gladsman's land but we know that buildings got up to 14 stories um mostly because one collapses at the end of the 17th century and we have a record of the building collapse so we we know that there are a lot of high-rise buildings at this period and that's really to conserve space and would it have been just just poor people living in these buildings or not at all so um everyone is living in tenements uh and that's what these buildings are called tenement buildings um and so there is some stratification in terms of the areas that people are living in, but there are also there is also some sort of um, lines drawn within the buildings themselves. So certain areas of the buildings uh, that people choose to live in are cheaper than others. Um, so the attics are often the cheapest part because it's the most stairs to get up to the top. I remember once he- hearing that um, the, the the upper floors were built of of rickety wood and they used to sway in the wind. We're- and sometimes you could reach across the the, the narrow alleyway um, uh, to your neighbour and shake his hand, and then you would pull one another, and the buildings would sway as you you pulled them. <laughs> um, uh, who knows? That that could could very well be <laughs> could true. Could be anecdotal, but it could be yeah, true. Anecdotal. No, I have heard that the, the top stories were quite flimsy, and and there were um, this this sort of incident of buildings collapse. The fourteen story building is is by no means unique. It continues to happen well into the eighteenth century. There's a big one in um, seventeen fifty one, which actually kills a number of members of the aristocracy, and is is one of the sort of the, the kickstarts. Um, when it comes to building the new town later in the 18th century. So it does continue to happen. These are Some of these are quite uh, dodgy structures, I suppose, um, because people um, are building up without a real sense of the foundations that are needed. And so the bit of the Royal Mile that's closest to the castle is called the Lawn Market. Mm-hmm. Um, and am I right in thinking it was called the Lawn Market because that was where there was a lot of agricultural produce sold? So it's sold. A, a corruption of the, the, the phrase land market. Mm. So it's absolutely, it's internal produce that is coming up from within Edinburgh, from from the land. And so this bit of the Royal Mile being closest to the castle uh, had some of the the posher, the posher houses, it, some of the, the richer houses, and included in that is our very own Gladstone's land. land. So, yeah, in terms of class, obviously, being up near the castle is, is the nice bit. Uh, but you also... Um, the Royal Mile is a high point in Edinburgh, and it slopes down quite strongly on... Um, quite steeply on both sides. Um, and 
the Norlock is where Princess Street Gardens is now, if people know Edinburgh. Um, but there is a really steep incline down to what would have been the Norlock. Um, so wealthier people would want to live up the top of that hill instead of at the bottom, because any waste that was thrown out, food scraps, human waste, whatever was being disposed of, would run down the hill. Um, so um, if you'd got money, you didn't want to be at the bottom of that hill where it all ended up. Uh, so not only is Gladstone's land in the nice bit of the Royal Mile, it's at the top of the hill. So there we go. Uh, and it's called it's called Gladstone's Land. Uh, different buildings were, were, were often named after someone associated with them mm-hmm. or someone who owned it or lived in it. Uh, and although there was a building, that parts of the building date back to the 1560s, yeah. um, the, uh, the name... Uh, comes from a, a, a Thomas Gladstone, mm-hmm. who lived in uh, yes, my, my my important namesake Thomas, uh, um, <laughs> the, uh, a, a Thomas Gladstone who bought the building in 1617. Yes, and uh, that's as far as we're going to take this because we're going to discuss the the name and the person and all that with our our guest Anna in a little bit. Right, so we're sitting here in the uh, in the Gladstone's Land cellar with our guest. <laughs> Make it sound so glamorous. <laughs> well, uh, the podcast. Everyone says podcast bunker. You know, we've got ours is a little more 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 uh, more lavish. Historic. You know. I suppose. We've got some nice mm-hmm. pictures on the walls and things. Anyway, we're sitting here in the Gladstone's Land cellar with our guest for today's episode, Anna Brierton who is the Visitor Services Manager at Gladstone's Land. That is to say, the boss? I don't know, what would you say? Um, yes, I suppose, yeah, as, as far as you're concerned. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, well, there you go. That's, that's me putting my place. Very firmly, wasn't it? And she's your, she's your boss too, isn't she? She is indeed, yeah. So, so there you go, we have to be on our best behaviour. Although technically I'm a volunteer, so um, you have only as much authority as I want to. You could to. just stop coming in, can't yeah, you? Yeah, I could. Anyway. Depends what you get up to, Thomas, I suppose. <laughs> Keep you sweet with fudge. <laughs> yes, and I should say we're, um, we've had... Have these been for Christmas? Was, what was yes, it? yeah. So much food in Gladstone's land at the moment. Everyone has brought in a vast amount of goodies and we've all eaten so much that we've made ourselves a little bit... Well, anyway, yeah, so, that's, so we've got a very nice bowl of, of fudge uh, to, to enjoy while we, we do this. So what we're going to be, what we're going to be talking about well, it is the, the, the property in general. Uh, this is the, the first episode, as, as the listeners will know. And uh, so we're, we're going, we've got Anna here to talk a little bit about the, the building, um, some of the history of the building and and then some of what, what the National Trust does with it. So I guess the place to start, it's called Gladstone's Land. Mm. Um, and who? why is it called Gladstone's Land? Um, so basically, um, there's been a building here for um, all the way through the medieval period. Um, but um, the history of Gladstone starts in about 1617, when... Um, Thomas Gladstone and his wife, Bessie Cunningham, bought the property. They bought it um, as a kind of renaissance buy-to-let scheme. Um, (laughs) And um, in 1619, they extended it out and uh, sort of redecorated it, um, have a property developer um, kind kind of thing. 
and um, the building um, as we know it is named after Gladstone because it's been in his family's hands um, on and off um, for about 200 years <clears throat> after that is they bought it in 1617 yes they, yeah from then it was owned by him and members of the family yeah and it sort of passed out of his hands because he wasn't a, he was a, a merchant um, he wasn't a terribly good merchant um, so he lost a significant amount of money and had to sell various bits off um, and then his granddaughter um, who was also called Anna um, bought it back into the family um, in uh, the mid 18th century um, by way of her husband it, and I think uh, lots of buildings all and streets and things all along the Royal Mile were named after people who lived there weren't they or people associated people with or professions them. yeah so you've got places like fish market close um bakehouse close um flesh market close you've also got lady stairs close um Borthic close um so you've got all of these places um that as you say are named after the people who lived there um significant people who lived mm-hmm. there or the activity that took place there um, so most of them are self-explanatory um, but um, there are some, some interesting places up and down and so I guess even though the name even though it was only owned by someone called Gladstone for a, a reasonable mm. period of time the name stuck with the building I guess yeah, yeah, I think so so I mean it's certainly over the years um, the names change as well so what's now Lady Stairs Close, which runs down the side of Gladstone's land, um, has been called several different things over the years. Uh, but it's reverted back to being Lady Stairs Close um, because of um, the renovations of Lady Stairs House, which is now the Writer's Museum um, by Lord Rosebery in the late 19th century. But yeah, no, they, um, they kind of change and alter depending on who lives there. Um, but for the most part, it is the most significant person who who sort of, hmm. I suppose, a good example, um, which most people will have heard of, would have been Mary King's Close. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, the thing I was but... just going to throw in is in terms of <laughs> land, which I, I thought was really oh, interesting mm. when I first moved here, um, they were often, so buildings were often called somebody's land mm-hmm. in the same way that Closes took their name. Mm. Um, and I thought it was quite an interesting use of it. It's not one I'd come across before I moved to Edinburgh, but that's very much where that comes from. That was a really common Yeah, the land that it was built on rather than the building itself. I think I looked this. I looked this up as I often do in the uh, the online uh, dictionary of the Scots language, and uh, <laughs> it suggest, suggesting that land it, it had a particular legal connotation, like in in property names and in legal documents and things. You would it had a specific meaning, but also in more general terms that for a, a house or a, a a bit of land, or or it just meant. It, that in Scots land meant property mm. so it was Gladstone's possession or Gladstone's property anyway as you're right there's as well as you are close and wind and things like that mm-hmm. was named after a particular person anyway that's all that's all that so it was it was a um was a was a you said a buy to let scheme it was basically a block of flats yeah it, yeah essentially so um if there's any listeners from abroad, the tenement building, as you know, in America, um, tends to be associated with um, with poverty for the most part. But the tenement in Scotland, in Edinburgh, at this in this particular period, uh, was more associated um, with with simply a block of flats. Um, and 
where we are situated on the Royal Mile, on the lawn market, um, it would have been a very desirable position to live in. Um, and the flats would have um, been rented out for quite a lot of money. Um, so you would have been getting a lot of the sort of, I suppose, the emergent middle classes sort of taking possession of these flats. So it was mainly merchants who'd made um, who'd made their money through trade, um, but also um, minor members of the aristocracy um, and um, sort of. Um, in the later um, 18th century, you've got a, a sort of a very successful surgeon living here as well. So. We have it. We have it set up at a particular time, don't we? Mm. The um, that is to say, the building is laid out as it would have been in the time of Thomas Gladstone. Yes, is that correct? yeah. So um, a lot of what we've um, done with the building um, since it was opened to the public in 1980. Um, is based off um, a tax annuity record from the 1630s. Mm. Um, and from that, we know who lived on which floor and what their profession oh, was um, and how how many rooms they owned. Um, and so that's how... Um, that's basically how we've, we've based how we've set up the property. Because um, Gladstone's Land does have a very long history. It hasn't all been sort of wealth and prosperity um sort of after the um the end of the 18th century it started to go into steady decline and mm-hmm. um, so by the, the whole of the um the whole of the old town started to fall into decline yeah exactly um so ki- kind of coinciding with um with the onset of the new town mm-hmm. um a lot of the wealthier people moved out towards the new town um there was more room the houses were bigger um, it was more spacious and it, it more fashionable it was, as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, the aesthetic was much yeah. more in line with current fashions. Um, and at that point, the old town did start to sort of decay. Um, to the point in the in the eighteen nineties, um, there was a series of reform acts um, where a lot of uh, a lot of the old town was was demolished, um, and certainly. Um, Gladstone's land when it was bought by the National Trust in 1934 um, there were um, rooms uh, which were um, considered not fit for living in mm-hmm. um, and it was scheduled for demolition and so they bought it and renovated it and say, saved it from demolition basically yeah mm-hmm. so it was brought to the attention of um, the National Trust for Scotland by um by a man called Frank Mears, who was um, working for um, the Agricultural Protection Society for Scotland. And he suggested that um, a lady called Helen Harrison might be willing to donate some money towards the um, towards buying and restoring Gladstone's land. That's very charitable, isn't it? Suggesting that somebody else donate. <laughs> I, I did like his style, yeah. <laughs> um, he did manage to persuade her, though, and she actually donated... Um, a thousand pounds towards it, um, which may not sound like a, a lot now, um, but Gladstone's land at the time was bought for less than eight hundred pounds. Um, so um, she donated that money uh, with the idea that the upper floors of the property would be used to um, rent out as almshouses. Um, so for um, older people of limited means. 
and uh, she did get her wish and they were rented out um until very very recently um to to, to older people so um it, it had a very successful history in the 20th century Good. so we've got we've got the building we uh and it 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 has this it, this interesting history we know mm. who lived in it in the 17th century and then it has this uh long long decline um and then it was bought by the national trust and how how does it operate now what sort of things go on uh here as a in a national trust property um so we're we're quite um interesting as a property because everything is located um in the one building we're not one of the big estates that you usually associate with uh, with the National Trust for Scotland or the National Trust. Um, so we have a shop on the ground floor um, and this is because uh, the ground floor has always been shops of some kind. So all throughout the 17th century um, it was used by the merchants to sell their wares um, up until in the 1950s when it was a dairy. Um, so it's always been used to sell goods. And a pub, I believe, one part of it was the, yeah, so the, the Burns pub. So our back room um, on the ground floor uh, was a Rabbi Burns pub until the 1950s. There's a plaque on the, the wall outside saying that Rabbi Burns uh, lived here during his stay in Edinburgh. That's not in this building, is Not it? in this building, building no. <laughs> oh, close, close by. Um, but I believe he, he got around in Edinburgh during his very short stay <laughs> it's like so, Rowling yeah. yeah she wrote she wrote harry potter at all of the cafes around here and in fact she also wrote some of it or at least thought about it in gladstone's land i'm sure she, <laughs> I'm sure she, she did, did yeah. yeah and so we've got a shop on the ground floor mm-hmm. um and then above that there is the we call it the museum yeah right? it's, a, it's a historic house so it's a recreated um apartment from the 17th century um, so we've used bits of information um, and historical research to try and um, give our visitors an idea of what life would have been like um, during during the 1630s. Uh, above that, um, we have um, half of the building is a holiday flat and the other half is um, our second floor painted chamber, uh, which we also use as a visitor space. And above that, the third floor, we have our third floor painted chamber at the front, uh, which we use as um, an event space and a visitor space. And at the back, we have offices. And on the fourth floor, we have two holiday flats. And the holiday flats, um, they were they were put in originally in sort of response to the... Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, you had the, the almshouses that were there, the the homes for for women of and and men of limited means and um when they left they were created into mm. into holiday flats um as a as a i suppose a, a sort of easy way to to use what was already there um and build on that history and could you just explain why they're called painted chambers i can indeed yeah <laughs> um so one of the very special things about um gladstone sands um and actually not the reason why it was bought by the national trust for scotland is that we have three uh, renaissance painted chambers um and um the first floor one which has been on display to the public since 1980 um, is perhaps the one that most of you will recognise if you've been here before. 
and we have um, a painted ceiling um, which was fairly common in Scotland at the time um, but very few of them actually remain now and we also have painted wall decoration and this all dates from around 1619 to about 1621 and we think sometime during the end of the 17th century the ceilings were actually boarded up and that's why they've why they survived why they've survived for so long the National Trust had no idea they were yeah. there when they purchased it so it was a, a lovely surprise lovely surprise in the 1940s survived. they weren't discovered until the 40s during a stage of renovation <laughs> It sounds like you have a very diverse job. You're never doing the same thing. Yes. <laughs> What's your favourite part? What do you like most about working for the National Trust? I think I like, I, I mean, I do really like that you never have one, two days the same. Um, every day you come in and you do not know what you're going to be doing. Um, one of my other favourite parts is actually working with volunteers and working with that diverse range of different people because you get so many different perspectives and um, so many different life experiences and it's so interesting and really, really pleasant to work with them um, and to hear what they have to say and have their contributions. Um, and I think that's what makes it a really nice place to work as well. Um, but that is definitely one of my favourite parts. Um, I suppose I, I've always wanted to work in heritage in a historical environment so being able to come to work and um, working in um, a sort of 16th 17th century building um, is also a, a pretty good bonus um, and being surrounded by history and getting to engage with history every day is really good great Finally, the question we've all been waiting for, <laughs> um, the, the most important question of the interview really, what, um, if you had uh, a, an imaginary dinner party with three historical figures, who would you, uh, who, who would you invite? Uh, I'm really glad you gave me forewarning of this question, uh, because <laughs> I have been thinking about it a lot. Um, and there were some last-minute changes as well. Yeah, well, you can give us um, the short list as well, but, if you like. Um, so I am um, a student of Renaissance, the Renaissance period. Um, so I suppose my first two people come from that period. Um, and I would, without a doubt, choose Shakespeare. Um, yeah. Classic. Um, but I think he'd be a really amusing... Um, a really amusing um, house guest to have um, and um, yeah I just think he'd you know, break the tension between everyone else it'd be great he'd definitely be there with the bawdy jokes he would my second person would be um, Francis Walsingham who uh, was a member of Queen Elizabeth's the firsts I should perhaps add that in mm. um government <laughs> and he uh, he basically ran a spy network um mm. and uh, i just think he'd be an absolutely fascinating mm. guest to have because uh, you know all of the court gossip uh do you think he and shakespeare would know each other or would well, do you think they would know i think they would know of each other yeah shakespeare yeah because um, of course Shakespeare had loads of aristocratic um, patrons as well. So I worked for Elizabeth directly. As yeah. Well, 
Um, oh, so I know very little about Walsingham. Oh, he's yeah, no, he's he's brilliant. Um, you wouldn't be a little bit scared of him. You, probably, you... probably utterly <laughs> terrified. Yeah, but uh, you know that's what Shakespeare's there for. And um, I think the person most likely to break any tension would be my third person, um, who'd be Geoffrey Chaucer. You know, maybe, maybe not a dinner party, maybe just a, you know, drinks a pub. Yeah, drinks with Chaucer. I think he'd be. There's a play in that, isn't there? <laughs> I think I, I think I would have my eyes opened. <laughs> um, but I think it'd be quite a fun dinner party to have so that so those are your, so, we, so we had I Shakespeare think, uh, Walsingham and, and Chaucer. Chaucer yeah there, there were who else was on the list my shortlist um I did have um Leonardo da Vinci because I thought he'd be really yeah. interesting mm, but obviously yeah. there's a language barrier just trying to think it through logically and then I also thought of Vasari as well as um a great gossip um I think there's a theme I, here. I, mm-hmm. Well, you know, gossip. That's what. That's what makes. Yeah. I. I mean, I would add to this set if you want Renaissance gossip. I would suggest um, Pope Pius the <laughs> Second, uh, who uh, or, 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 or his um, before he became Pope, he was uh, Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini. Uh, he was uh, he's notable for being the pope or one of the popes who brought the papacy into the renaissance mm. he's sort of the, the 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 biggest of the the 15th century humanist popes uh, and he led a failed crusade against um, <laughs> the turks which would have been quite interesting to talk about uh, he he's the only pope i think to have visited scotland um, because he oh. went as a papal legate uh, during a bit to 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 scotland and he he, he, I think he he wrote about how bad the weather and the food was. So <laughs> and, but the most notable thing is that he, he's the only pope that we know of to have written an erotic novel. Has so, it survived? Is the question that is, yeah. Um, that uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I think I think we all want to know the title. So <laughs> yeah, we want yeah. to look up for next. That's, yes, that's definitely something to look up for next week. It's sort of a half fact, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh well. So, um, so well, that sounds like a pretty good dinner to me. So, mm. Renaissance sounds sausage. Fun. Quite drunken, I think. Yeah, I, I imagine so. Shakespeare and Chaucer. They were well-oiled. Right. Um, and so I think we're definitely going to get um, Anna back on at a future episode to talk about uh, tea and the sort of mm-hmm. Georgian tea party. Excellent. Uh, at tea ceremony. Sorry, not tea party. Tea party, tea ceremony. Uh, I'm just um, in a festive mood after mm. imagining this this dinner anyway we'll, <laughs> we'll, so we'll be having Anna back on later but uh, for now thank you very much thank you that was that was a really interesting talk. I think it's it's, mm-hmm. it's it's good. It's great to hear individual people's stories. I think that's one of the going to be one of the exciting things about doing this podcast to hear different people and why, why they enjoy how they it. Get involved and, and, yeah. and how they've ended up in Gladstone's land. Um, and so, uh, 
what what have we got now? Yes, your emails now. That's um, I should say we we intend for this to be a section where we answer uh, questions sent in by members of the queries, queries, whatever you uh, send us, uh, or just read out entertaining emails. Um, but obviously, <laughs> since this is the first episode, we have no entertaining emails to read. So instead, we're going to address a couple of frequently asked questions. Uh, from members of the public on the tour. So the first one I have here, um, the furniture in the museum, are they, did it really come from the house? Um, Unfortunately, it didn't. So the furniture we have, um, I think as as has been explained in this this episode, that they were rented rooms. People came, they brought their own furniture in um, and they took it away again. And then later, um, actually, the the building itself became a a very nasty slum and then later bits of it uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. So any furniture that that did remain was lost in that, that process. So the furniture we actually have on display is not original to the house but what it is is original to the time period right so it's all period appropriate and actually a lot of it has come from other national trust properties Um, and we've got some really beautiful things on display there's also a number of items that connect directly to edinburgh so we've got a big Mm -hmm. dutch press in the painted chamber um which uh has a a nice story about a a a dutch trader who basically ran his ship aground in the fourth um, and gave it as a thank you present for people who helped him out during that period of time do you mean like a not a printing press. I no, mean, like a, a sort of a cupboard. Press, it's a cupboard. Yes, this is a period yeah. before clothes hangers, so you would have kept your clothes and your linen and um, in, in something called a press, which is just mm. basically a big cupboard. Um, and then we also have a, a, a cupboard from um, the offices of the Darien Scheme, which we will yes. be talking about in a later episode, Future episode. Uh, which is on loan from the National Li- of Li- Library of Scotland. So um, not... Not uh, actually Thomas Gladstone's furniture, but... No, but um, period appropriate and some really... I think my personal favourite thing that we have on display is is a beautiful cruel work bedspread from the 1630s mm. um which is is heavily embroidered all over and actually has a beautiful little hunting scene along the bottom with figures and dogs and a stag uh, it, it's an absolutely incredibly intricate absolutely gorgeous piece of work and actually the way the property is laid out although there are different rooms for different periods mm. there's what is it called? The green room. The green room. The, the Georgian, which is the Georgian wing. room. Yeah. Um, and then, although the rest of the flat it's is supposed to be seventeenth century, yeah. um, it does look. It looks really real. It looks really authentic. Um, and you have mostly natural light mm. and that sort of thing. So it's all uh, it gives you a real sense of sort of how people were living in the spaces. Speaking of light, we move on to our second question. Are the fires real? So, uh, for anybody that hasn't visited, I, I should probably explain this one. It's uh, something we get asked a lot, particularly by school children who are absolutely fascinated with them. In each of the rooms, we have huge fireplaces, big original fireplaces. Uh, and in those grates, we have um, fires, but they're, they're not real fires. We, we're not allowed to do that, unfortunately. Uh, but they Pretty. are very, I know, it's, it's sad. They are very realistic looking. Um, and and what they do is they actually have a water reservoir in them um, and they give off, instead of giving off smoke like a real fire, they give off water vapour, which looks like smoke, um, and they glow realistically. They're, they're, they're very good. And from a distance, you wouldn't know them from a real fire. Um, but obviously, they don't get hot in the same way as real fires. So particularly our, our school children on the, on the visits that we have, we have a lot of school visits. Um, 
want to touch them. That's all they want to do is all of the kids just want to touch the fires. Yeah. Um, I have to say, the first time I went round, I, I, I did too. Um, but what can you do? Uh, and they, again, they do look real. They, they do um, look great. As, yeah. as close as you can have it. And when we had the Georgian Christmas, Georgian Christmas party, no, not Georgian, when we had the Georgian Christmas party mm-hmm. last week, they... Um, they were the main source of light in yes. in the so in some of the rooms. We, we lit it all with um, with fake candles as well, but electric candles and, and the the fires. We tried to give a real sense of of how it would have been mm. at that event. So there you are. The third question we had, the third and final question for today. Um, uh, one one of the things that Edinburgh is apparently famous for, other than its sort of authentic history, is is ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I was a tour at Mercat Tours, um, which is another one of the, the, the really big tourist attractions on the, the mile, and they do ghost tours. Uh, and there's a couple of other companies that run... Do they have ghosts at Mary King's they Close? They do. They have some ghost tours at Mary King's Close as well. So, um, so a lot of people come to Edinburgh uh, hoping for some, some, uh, some spook, spooky experience. stories. <laughs> and uh, the National Trust for Scotland, I suppose, is not really into ghosts, but um, but do but do we have ghosts of Gladstone's land? Is the building haunted? Well, this is a really interesting question and I think depending on which staff member you talk to you might get slightly different answers. Mm. Uh, I personally have, although I've not been here a massive amount of time, I've never seen anything. Uh, And we did have some paranormal investigators in just after I started actually, Mm. who found nothing at all absolutely nothing they spend the whole night in the building they set up all sorts of equipment and all sorts of recording devices um and their their result was actually that they they couldn't find anything at all um although there are some staff members that have had slightly it's not nothing huge but slightly unexplainable things happen that that you know perhaps could be attributed to paranormal activity but but certainly we're not we're not a big source of it (laughs) so there you go Probably not. Is the, is the, answer, is the building yes. haunted? Probably not. <laughs> so that's our. Um, those are our, our frequently asked questions for today. And I should say again, if you if you do have questions about the house or questions for us, or you have a a, a point you'd like to have read out, um, or indeed, and on a more practical note, if you would prefer to hear us uh, not waffling on about uh, whatever rubbish we've decided to talk about this week then please do get in touch um gladstone's land is on facebook and twitter Twitter, and instagram and and instagram whatever that is (laughs) and um, i could say you're showing your age but i don't don't think that's the case at all no um (laughs) certainly not and um and so if if you get in touch at any of those media and uh, and say you have a question for the podcast that'll get through and also we have an email address we do it is gladstonesland or one word at nts.org.uk and you can just drop us a line on there if you put something like it's for the podcast in the title it'll get to us so uh, so that's that. Um, the other thing, of course, is that we have to encourage you to subscribe mm-hmm. and, uh, and like us and review. These things all help in terms of getting the podcast known. Um, because the, what, we talked a bit at the beginning about why we're doing it. Um, we think that National Trust is a great organisation. And um, it, it's, not, it's not government funded. Uh, and uh, it, so the National Trust for Scotland and, and other heritage charities do uh, a huge amount of work to to preserve our 
our, our heritage, uh, preserve these these ancient monuments mm-hmm. and uh, and and as we've heard a little bit today, and as we'll hear a bit over the next few weeks, uh, do an awful lot of exciting things to to make that heritage come alive. Very so. Nice, we hope that this podcast will do its uh, do do a small bit to to publicise the great work of the National Trust for Scotland here at Gladstone's Land. So please subscribe, like, <laughs> review, all that stuff, and uh, and and I think that's all we have to say. Coming up next week, what have we got next week? So next week we have a day in the life of Gladstone's Land. Uh, so we thought it, it might be nice to give you a bit of an insight into actually how the building worked, how we operate on a daily basis. So we will be following around our, um, our uh, one of our supervisors, Holly, um, sort of starting with her open it, opening up in the morning and sort of seeing her through the day and what she gets up to and um, giving you an insight in, into really sort of how the building operates. And I should say that although I said next week, um, we're going to do this fortnightly, aren't we? We're going to have it coming yes. out every two weeks. So actually, actually, in two weeks' time. So, and this will be a re- will be a recurring theme. I am often going to say uh, <laughs> coming out next week when I, re- I really mean next time. Um, but so, if you're just going to have to bear with me on that. Uh, so yes, uh, do tune in next time for. Mm-hmm. A day in the life of Gladstone's land. So I think that's all, what, all we've got to say. So I guess it's enough from us for now. <laughs> uh, I'm Thomas. I'm Kate. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Anna Brierton. Our music is Apollinaris in Clickty by Anibali Stabile, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or online at www.nts.org visit places gladstones land. Thank you very much for listening.